I love the Advent season. Um, if the series is a little confusing to you, last year we walked through Advent uh, week by week as part of the message series. And this week, I, this year, we just want to keep Advent as part of our church tradition, kind of culminates in our Christmas Eve service. Um, but the messages aren't all tied uh, to each Advent uh, week uh, this time around. We actually started a great conversation uh, last week about Christmas, and we asked this question, who needs Christmas? Who needs it? All of the extra things that we have to do. I mean, obviously, like Target needs it, and uh, J.C. Penney certainly needs it. And uh, but but who needs Christmas? And who is Christmas for? And what are we doing here? And last week we introduced this incredible tension that the entire world needed Christmas, and that the Christmas story actually didn't start, like I said just moments ago, with a, uh, a couple who were surprised to find out they were having a baby. It actually started 2,000 and about 90 years before that with a couple not knowing if they could have a baby, and God starting this incredible process into the world to bless the entire world. And so we talked about that last year and then, or last year, last week. And so, uh, and so we're asking this question, who needs Christmas? And today I'm gonna invite you into a little bit of attention, I think, by uh, making this statement. I believe God needed Christmas. God needed Christmas. And we're gonna have that conversation and I'm gonna leave you a little bit tense there. I was thinking about unbelievable stories and if you ever tried to convince someone of a story and they just didn't believe you, something incredible happened and you're trying to tell them and they just don't believe you. I actually remember the first time I realized I shouldn't believe someone who was telling me incredible stories. Maybe you have one of those people in your life who tells you stories and you're just like, there's no way. And you're right, there's no way. I was 17, I was a, no, 16, I was a junior in high school, and my, uh, my really good friend, she was dating a senior, <clears throat> um, I don't think he'll hear this, but uh, his name was and uh, <laughs> Keith was hilarious. We love Keith. And uh, she was dating uh, this guy named Keith. And Keith had the best stories. And at first, I would listen to his stories, and I'd be like, man, this guy lives an incredible life. And then I realized, no, this guy tells incredible stories. My favorite Keith story was he, was, uh, he decided he was going to go into the military, and he was training for, uh, uh, for rescue missions. So he rented a helicopter as he was doing a helicopter tour, and they went up on the side of a mountain, and they threw a tennis ball out of the helicopter, and then he jumped out of the helicopter with a parachute and skis and had to find the, heli- the, the tennis ball. And if he could find the tennis ball, then he would qualify for something to get into some special ops program, and I realized that wasn't a thing. <laughs> I said, Keith, that's an incredible story, and there's lots of fun details, and it sounds like a James Bond movie, but I don't think that actually happened in your life. Keith was a lot of fun. Um, eventually, my friend wisened up and decided to not continue dating him. But he remained in our friend circle for a while. <laughs> we have other fun Keith stories, I'll have to tell you, someday. But, uh, but it's funny when you're telling a story and it's like, please believe me. And it's like, I don't believe you. The facts that I see don't seem to measure up. And my perspective doesn't line up with your perspective. And so I'm not believing your story. Sometimes, though, those stories are true. And we find ourselves in positions where we have information that someone else doesn't have. And we're trying to convince them of the truth of this story, but it doesn't seem to be settling in. Parents, we've experienced this. You have to set a boundary or or give some information to your child. And your child's like, you don't know what you're talking about. 
And you're like, no, you don't know, but I know. I can see the picture of what's going on here. And if you don't trust me in this, the, the results are going to be so much worse. And parents, you've been in that situation where you're trying to communicate, articulate. Now, I have a, I have a preteen now who's 12. He's in the room, so I'll be careful on using my stories about him. But for the first time, I'm starting to experience some of this. Now, I got to experience this for over 15 years as a youth pastor, but it's way more fun as a youth pastor when the kid who's freaking out has to go home to the parent. So I can say, hey, relax, it's going to be okay, you know, don't worry about it. Then send them back to you, and then you get to deal with the nuclear blast of all the stuff. Now that it's mine, it's a little bit of a different story. I'm more sympathetic than I used to be. But I also recognize there's been many times, even from just youth pastoring, where you're talking to someone and you're trying to say, listen, you don't understand. The end result of this isn't going to go the way you think it's going to go. None of the data points to this. Believe me. And they're like, I don't believe you because I can't see what you see. And we know that as parents, and we know that just in our regular relationships. But here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine now for just a moment that you're the invisible God of the universe, and you're trying to convince your children that you love them, that you have a plan, that no matter how bad things have gotten because of their behavior, you are coming for them, that there is help on the way, but they can't see it. What would you do if you were God? What would you do to help them see that there is a plan in place, that you love them, that you care for them, that the rescue is on the way? How would you get them to believe what seems to be unbelievable, which hasn't seemed to made sense for so long to them. So last week, as we walked into the Christmas story, we see this unbelievable God make a promise to Abraham and Sarah and say, I'm going through you to bless not just you and all your descendants, but I'm going to use those descendants to bless every single nation on the earth. And just a statement like that was unbelievable. Nations didn't bless other nations. They conquered them. They stole resources from them. They, they used their wealth and their power to assert their strength and their culture over the top of them. They didn't exist to bless other nations. That's not what happened. Yet here's this promise from God. I'm going to bless you. You're going to become a nation. They're like, we just want to become parents. It's like, no, you're going to become a nation. And that nation, I'm going to, through that nation that I bless you with, I'm going to bless all of the nations. And if you, if you can imagine, 4,000 plus years ago, that was absurd. Now we, on the other side of Christmas, go, oh yeah, that makes total sense. We could see how God had a plan to do that because we know the story of Jesus, but they didn't know that story. So here comes God for thousands of years developing relationship with a nation that he wants to use to bless other nations. And last week we walked through this. Every opportunity to bless other nations, they didn't bless other nations. They didn't do it. And then suddenly in this perfect, ridiculous time when no one was expecting it, something insane happens in the world some 2,000 years ago. This Roman empire raises up and conquers the known world. Something happens that even today is almost unbelievable. There's peace in the Middle East. 2,000 years ago, there was peace in the Middle East. Rome was in control. There was law. 
There was a, a, a standard, uh, standardized language and shipping paths and roads. There was sewage and water treatment coming into place. There was development happening. There was an empire in control. And in this moment, when everyone thought God has left us, there were some things that were happening in Jerusalem at the same time. Pompey had come in. We talked about this last week. He wiped out the temple uh, worshipers. He wiped out the priests. He kicked open the room to the Holy of Holies. He walks in and he sees that there's no altar in there to speak of. There's nothing in there. He's looking for an idol because every other country, every other nation that he actually conquered, there were idols to take and throw down, but there was no idol in there. And he thought, what a puny, weak religion. They don't even have an idol that they worship. What does he know? So he allows them to continue to worship. And something happens. This temple worship gets fired back up and the temple worship's happening under Rome. And there's this moment where people are allowed to still worship God, but... What ends up happening is the culture begins to shift to this very religious type of culture. The rules come on now became way more important than any relationships. And more and more and more rules were getting in place because this is how we manage and control the temple and this is how we keep Rome happy. And it's this weird moment in time where no one is expecting anything incredible. And then here comes a baby. If you find the Christmas story, unbelievable. I'm with you. There's some unbelievable things there. It's hard to process the Christmas story sometimes in a historical context. The only reason the Christmas story is worth even talking about at all is the fact that it actually affected all the other nations. And we're here today talking about it. Something is insane about that. A little Jewish baby is born in a manger And Washingtonians care about that? Are you serious? In 2018, something remarkable and amazing happened in this moment in time. So we asked the question, did God need Christmas? What was he trying to do? Now, I love this picture of this little baby coming into the world, living a life, dying, only 30-something years old, and then something else happened, and something changed. He didn't stay in the grave. That's crazy. And then suddenly, this group of people who had killed him started following him, and suddenly, the story of his birth and his life began to invade the known world. How did it happen? There were roads, There were shipping paths. There was common language. People were moving through. There was peace. Even though they were under Roman rule, there was peace. You could walk the known world and just say citizen Romanus and no one would mess with you out of fear of the might of Rome. And so this incredible story happens and people start hearing the story of Jesus and the story of his birth and the story of his life and the story of his death and even more miraculous. Here's the thing, no matter what you believe about how he came into the world, how he left the world is the thing that matters. The fact that he rose from the dead and then, and then conquered death and then was saw by witnesses and we hear the story of these witnesses. And so we're gonna look at some perspective. If you're skeptical of the Christmas story, let me introduce you to a guy named Paul who was incredibly skeptical. Incredibly skeptical. 
As a matter of fact, if you think that sometimes the things that Christians say they believe, things like a virgin got pregnant, is absurd, Paul would say, yeah, that's crazy talk. Paul would say, I, I'm so offended by it that I actually lock people up who talk like that and throw them in jail, and I'm happy for them to be killed. That was Paul's story. So, so some of you are like, there's some Christians I would love to lock up. At least get them off social media. Easy, easy. Right? And Paul was happy to do that, yet something happens. He has an encounter with the risen Jesus, and it changes everything. And so he starts looking at his life and looking at the story and summarizing what has happened. And one of the greatest pictures of how come God needed Christmas is told to us by Paul in the book of Galatians. And I'm going to throw it up on the screen for you. I'm going to be all over the place in scripture today. So you might want to just follow along on the screen. Otherwise, you can get to Galatians and then, uh, yeah, then jump around with me. Depends on how good you are jumping. I'm in Galatians chapter four. And Paul is telling the story. He says, but when the set time had fully come, what is he talking about? He's talking about all the things I just said. It was the perfect moment, even though no one was expecting it. There was peace on earth, relative peace. Yes, Rome was brutal dictators, and no one thought that's the way that peace was going to happen, but it worked. Prior to that, there's no way that, that, that one baby born in a manger in Bethlehem's story could have been told across the known world. Prior to Rome, when the time had fully come, there were roads, there were ships, there was law. There was all of the things that were necessary. It was God's perfect timing. Everything was connected. The temple, though it was, run, was running, it was failing. It was becoming more about money and rules than a place of worship. There was rules ruling all of their faith, not love, not compassion. So the set time had fully come. The people who God had initiated relationship had moved away from relationship and into religion with him. And God said, now's the moment. He said, in that exact moment, God sent his son. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law. Jesus came at a time when relationship with God was only achievable by following the rules. But that was never the plan. That was never the plan. You look through the story of God's interaction with mankind. For thousands of years, it was, I'll be your God. You be my people. I'll be your God. You be my people. Don't worry. I'll be with you wherever you go. And then suddenly, everything had shifted and pivoted into a very, and we like this. We want to box up. How does God work? And so they had these 10 commandments that were in place. Now, now remember, God didn't just lead with the 10 commandments. He led with, let me get you out of slavery in Egypt. Let me feed you. Let me supernaturally give you water and direction. Let me give you a pillar of fire by day to follow and a pillar of uh, or fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day. Let me give you direction. He wants to establish relationship. Then boundaries came in to show you how to live in such a way that you didn't wreck your life. Simple things like don't murder, right? Some simple things. Remember to rest. Don't have other gods and other things become more important than your relationship with me. Yet they, we took those boundaries and those things and we put rules and rules and rules and rules upon top of that. And suddenly their relationship had drifted further and further and further and further and further and further and further, and further away. 
So I introduced this tension of God needing Christmas. Why? Because God was relational and wanted a relationship. And in order for a relationship to happen, there had to be some personal interaction. We had to break through this policy and get to personal. So God sends his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Verse five, why? To redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. God wanted to do something personal. He desired a personal relationship. He didn't want, come on now, temple followers. He wanted sons and daughters. He wanted relationship. And so God does the most incredibly relational thing you can imagine. He shows up as a baby in a culture where he doesn't have power, he doesn't have strength, he doesn't have political clout, he doesn't have a big important last name, he doesn't have wealth, he just shows up relationally. Now, God could have done a lot of things. He could have sent, angels were busy. He could have just sent an angel, been like fiery angel, drops down, does the superhero drop right on top of the temple, you know, the one where you fall on a knee, right? (laughs) And the whole thing grabs. He could have just stood up with two flaming swords, been like, I'm Michael, right? I speak for God. You guys need to knock this off. God wants a relationship with you. Fire coming out, right? It would have got everyone's attention. It would have, and he could have used that mechanism, but for whatever reason, that didn't seem quite as relational. He could have sent Jesus fully formed Terminator style, right? Lightning strikes, Arnold steps out. For some reason, he's naked. Just go with it. (laughs) Right? Just come with me if you want to live. That would have made an impression. It certainly would have got people's attention. But what was he trying to show us a picture of? I was saying, that's not, that's not, I don't want a fear-driven relationship with you. I don't want you to be at some place where you have been overwhelmed by force. I want to bring you into relationship through loving kindness. And I want to show you that I understand your condition and the condition that you're in right now. And so I'm going to come as a baby in a manger. And I'm going to be born under the same law that you're dealing with and the same circumstances that you're struggling with into the same culture that you're wrestling with so that you can see it is possible in your circumstance to have relationship with me. He wants to be relatable. You know, there's something about when the powerful guy shows up that changes everything and the dynamics change. I've had some of those moments. Sometimes I've been the heavy in the room, like, oh no, pastor's here, like we're in trouble, <laughs> All right? That's never the position I want to say. I remember the first time. So I, I tell stories about my, uh, my family a, a lot, and, and some of you have been with me know that I've struggled with my, my father and some of his uh, addictions. But uh, only one time did he ever show up at my school. And, uh, and it was an interesting scenario. I didn't realize this. Well, I realized this, but I didn't realize the consequences of it. Um, I had an excessive amount of tardies. Imagine that. Now, there was a reason that I had an excessive amount of tardies, though, that, that was kind of an unspoken reason. Our school was way overcrowded in the, in the Bay Area. Our school, I think our school was built for 1,200, for 1200 and we had, uh, no, it was built for 1,200, and we had 1,200 in our class, is how that worked. 
right? We only graduated like 700 of those, by the way, but that's a whole other story. And so, and so our, uh, there was a bond, and another school was supposed to get built, but it kept getting delayed, kept getting delayed. So they were doing construction on our school to expand it while they were building another school, but basically there was two full high schools. Now, you put two full equivalent numbers of high schools into one small space, every space on our campus that was open had portables because you just class, 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 right? And so it just, it's how it was, <clears throat> not a big deal, but, but it was so overcrowded, and there was so much... Um, tension in there. There was regular fight. I mean, like, like you think you've been in a school that fights a lot. Like our school just fathers fights and things going on all the time. So anyways, just painting a picture. So it's rough. It's a rough deal, right? And so, but you know, it, it's just normal. It's what you do every day. So what happens is I have this um, incredibly sweet, beautiful uh, high school sweetheart named Christine. And, uh, and so I'm that guy who's like, I'm just going to walk you to class. Because literally, it was no big deal to see one fight a week, a day. It just was not a big deal. Like, you just had to navigate things. So I would walk her to class, and then I would go to class. And so because it was so crowded, and you only got, what, like five minutes, you can only get from space. It just wasn't possible, right? And so I made a decision that said it's more important for me to get her there safely. Come on now, fellas. Right, right. I was, I was, I was working hard. Right, I was trying to, I was trying. I was in love. I don't mind saying it. And, uh, anyways, um, all of that to say, I was just always late, and I didn't care because that's just how it was. But I only had one teacher that really uh, didn't get it. Right, and so, so that person was just racking up the tardies. And so, again. I'm indifferent, not paying attention to it, don't realize what's going on, I get called into the office. I've never been called into the office because in a school this crowded, you're just not getting one-on-one -on -one time unless you're absolutely like an issue, right? And so I get called into the office and a vice principal that I have never met is there to talk to me and my father's in the room. I'm like, oh no, someone died. Like what, like, right? <laughs> not, or I'm gonna die. One of those two things is about to happen. And so, so he says, well, you know why we're, you're here? And I said, I have no idea. And they said, well, you know, um, the reason is you have this excessive amount of tardies. I'm like, how many tardies? He's like, you have all the tardies. <laughs> right? like, like there isn't any time when you're not tardy. You're just always tardy. Now, some of you are in the school district and you're, you're hearing this and you're laughing at me, but you're also frustrated with me because I'm that kid. But it's true. <laughs> and so I'm, have mercy on me. I was younger. And, I, <laughs> and so, so they start getting into this to me. Like, what are we going to, what's it going to take? Corrective action. And my dad, you know, he's there. He's all mad because he's got called into the school and, and, you know, and he's just, he's not happy. And he's like, he's like, I'm going to walk with you from class to class and see if you can make it in five minutes. And I said, well, you can walk with me, but we're going to drop Christine off first. All right. And he looks at me and he goes, hmm. And then he asked the guy, he goes, well, is there a problem with that? <laughs> and the guy goes, well, you're making a time. And he goes, well, so, and then I start to tell the story where well, there's been all these fights and da, 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 da. And my dad's like, yeah. And he looks at the guy and he goes, I don't see a problem with it. Come on, somebody, right? And he goes, I don't know what I'm doing here, thanks. And he left. <laughs> and that was it. And they never asked me about it again. And you know what I did? I walked her to class every day. Come on, somebody. And then I went to class. And why am I saying that? I'm just saying that sometimes when the heavy shows up, it changes everything. And so God understood that this thing had to get personal that the heavy was gonna have to show up and demonstrate the heart to help us in our broken condition. Why? Because he wanted us to recognize that he didn't want temple worshipers. He wanted sons and daughters. Verse six, Paul says, because you are his sons, 
God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you're his child, God has also made you an heir. See, God needed Christmas for that. He needed Christmas for us to understand that that's the identity that he wanted to deposit into us. That's the thing we were missing out of that promise, that covenant promise he made with Abraham, out of that relationship he established with Moses, out of that freedom that he brought to those slaves, out of the 10 commandments that he put in place to put boundary markers to help a brother or a sister out so we didn't accidentally think, oh, maybe I'll just stab you every time I have a problem with you, right? He was trying to help us understand how to live in healthy relationship with one another so we could get relationship with him. And we turned that into a system of worship. And he wanted to turn it into a sonship and a daughtership in the kingdom. So the way to do that was the heavy had to show up. And if you're the invisible God, the spirit who if you see me, you'll just die because you can't handle the holiness of me. I've got to break through that. I can do a Terminator style. I can send an angel ambassador. I can show up in the flesh and demonstrate what it looks like to be a child of God living in the flesh here on earth. That's what God wanted to accomplish with Christmas. Paul later in his letter to the Romans says it this way. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, he says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, this is an amazing statement to make because he's trying to get us to understand what the whole plan was, that God had to show up. And not only did he show up, he lived a human perfect life, and then he died and paid the price to assign us the value that we didn't realize we had. And in order to pay the debt that we were carrying, because we were so ungrateful for his love that our behavior had just gone out of control, he wanted us to understand this is what I'm doing. This is a rescue mission. This is a rescue mission. I need you to know who you really are and how valuable you are. So I'm coming, I'm living in the flesh. And at the right time, while we're still powerless, I'm going to pay the price and die for you. You know what's crazy about this, Paul writing this? I never thought about it this way, but it's true. Paul actually experienced being alive before the cross and being alive after the cross. We always look backwards and we go, this is our life before we knew about the cross. This is our life before we experienced what God had done for us personally. But he actually lived when there had been no cross yet, no death, no resurrection. And he could actually say at just the right time, while I was still a knucklehead, And I know what kind of knucklehead I was because it was months ago. See what I'm saying? He came for that guy who I was in that moment, that arrogant Pharisee, legalist, whatever it was. And he's looking out at other people who are getting saved, who are putting their trust in Jesus, going, you know what? Three months ago, you were this. And while you were doing that, even in the midst of all of that, that's when Jesus showed up. Imagine the power of that perspective. And he says at just the right time, in the nick of time, come on now, in the nick of time, he showed up. We always see it looking backwards. He saw it in the middle, and I just think that's a crazy perspective to think about. 
I love what Andy Stanley says about this. He says, Jesus's death demonstrated the magnitude of our ingratitude and the magnitude of his love for us. He showed up at just the right time while we weren't even living for him at all and said, I'm coming for you because I want you to know who you really are. And the only way you're gonna know is by assigning the value to you that you really have by paying the price for all of your mistakes and taking all of the weight on myself so you can be free and know me. It demonstrates the magnitude of our ingratitude and the magnitude of his love for us. How big was that love? And John says it this way, maybe you've heard it before, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. This whole story was a rescue mission. It was to rescue our identity, our relationship with him, and establish his love. And I love that it says that God so loved the world. It's like there's a measurement there. If you tell someone, I love you, or I so love you, there's like a, you've assigned a weight and a measurement to that. It says he loves the world so much. Why did he love the world so much? Why? Why love this mess? Come on, we look at this world and go, I don't know know why I would do any of that. I I don't know how in I am on all of this. Why would he love the world so much? And the reason is he is the author of life. Every living thing on this world got its breath from him. It's his. His whole heart for his creation was so that we could have life with him. He's the author. He wanted us to know that, so he had to show us how much he loved us. And that's the story of Christmas. That's why God needed it. I love this picture in Acts chapter three. I told you I'd be all over the place. They have uh, the disciples are face to face with a group of people who basically were there shouting out, crucify him. It's after the death and the resurrection. And these are people who they know if they incite this mob, this mob will turn on them. Come on, we know when a mob turns on you. This mob will turn on them all the way to the point where they could be killed. And they're talking to this group of people and they had been, they had been uh, uh, arrested and they get out and, they, and they're having a conversation and they, the guy gets healed at the temple beautiful and, and Acts chapter three, verse 11, and it says, while the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished. They came running to them in a place called Solomon's Colonnade. And it says, when Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, this is the crowd. Why does this surprise you? He's, they've just seen the, the spirit and the power of God heal and restore somebody. Why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness, it was us who made this man walk? Listen to this. The God of Abraham, remember the promise was coming all the way through. Christmas started with Abraham. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. He said, all of that stuff that you were waiting for, the God of Abraham connecting the Old Testament promises to this moment, he did all of that work for this for Jesus to be here. And you handed him over to be killed. Can you imagine standing in front of the mob that killed Jesus saying, you guys are idiots. Sorry. Idiots. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate. Though he had decided to let him go. He's like, listen, Pilate was gonna let him go. And you guys wanted Barabbas. You guys had every chance to let him go. And you didn't do it. Listen to this. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer 
be released to you. Verse 15, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses of this. He says, listen, this was a relational mission and you whiffed, you whiffed. He was the author of life. He was the answer to the perfect moment in time that you've been waiting for. He was the answer to the question of how in the world are we gonna get into relationship with God and what does he want from us? He was the answer and you killed him. He was the author of life. But God demonstrated his love and his power and raised him from the dead. And we're all witnesses of this. I heard it said this way one time. Love must be shown to be known. Love must be shown to be known. I can tell someone I love them. Come on. You can tell someone you love them. But if your behavior doesn't line up, your actions don't line up, those are just words. It's got to be shown to be known. It's got to be demonstrated. And God understood this. Why? Because he's the author of life. And he knew that we were going to have to be shown the kind of love that he had for us in order for us to get it. An angel with fiery AKs, just fire, just raining out. You get saved. You get saved, right? That wasn't going to cut it. A Terminator Jesus wasn't going to cut it. A demonstration of sacrificial love that assigned value to us as children of God was what it was going to take to break the hardness. Come on, these guys' hearts, this is a group of guys that just killed Jesus. They couldn't handle it until they saw, demonstrated God's crazy, ridiculous love for the world. Until they could see it demonstrated, they just weren't going to get it. Love had to be shown to be known. And you know this, you've experienced people that say they love you and then it, come on, the moment when you need them hits and they're nowhere to be found. That's when you find out who loves you, come on. So what does God do? God demonstrates his love. Romans 5 verse 7. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. You know, usually people won't just die for somebody. It's not a normal thing. That's not a normal behavior. People don't normally just go, oh man, Charlie, you're about to die. Let me die instead. That'd be awesome, right? It's not a normal move for people. And Paul says, very rarely someone will do it. Very rarely, right? Someone, I just saw a video yesterday of a police officer and the car was coming and they were on the side of the road and he pushed a guy out of the way and he took it and he survived. But it was just like that noble thing that sometimes rises up in us. Very rare, very, I mean, we celebrate it when we see it happening because it's unique and it's special. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. And we see that from time to time. When someone is incredibly valuable, someone else might step in front and say, I might, I might possibly, but it's still very rare. But look at verse eight. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. Remember, love has to be shown to be known. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we didn't have special status, special value, while we didn't recognize that we were sons and daughters in the kingdom of God, when we didn't know who we really are, in the midst of our lowest points, 
God demonstrates his love. That Christ came and died for us. His actions of love was to sacrifice his life for ours. So we have this crazy Christmas story. We haven't even hit really the Christmas story yet. We're just talking about the consequences of the Christmas story and the, and the narrative and, and recognizing that it's thousands of years before Mary and Joseph, this thing gets going. And it, and it culminates in this incredible event of God demonstrating his love for all of us. Like that was the whole thing. So the Christmas story of God is that he comes to this Jewish man named Joseph who finds out that his wife is pregnant before they're married. Talk about it, just the human condition. And it's just messy already from the beginning. He says, we're pledged to be married and you're pregnant and we haven't done the thing. You're muffs children. We haven't done the thing that causes that to happen. Since that hasn't happened yet, this isn't gonna work for me. And he has to have a moment of figuring out what he's going to do. Is he going to be kind towards her and just kind of quietly dismiss her? Is he going to publicly bring her forward and shame her and say, look at this? He has to consider in his heart how he's going to process this very human, very tough moment. And in the midst of that, Matthew chapter 1, we see... God show up, says, but after Joseph had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. See, Joseph wasn't expecting this to be the time either. Nobody was expecting it to be the time. Come on, Rome's in control. The temple's all focused on money and not people. God's been silent. There's no prophet for 400 years. How could this possibly be the time? And then an angel shows up and says, it's the time. Verse 21, she will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. He's coming to save people from sin. God understands he's going to demonstrate his love. He's going to come, live, die, pay the price, save everybody who will call on his name. It's often a tension for Jesus when he talks about saving people from their sins. He brings it up several times in the Gospels. He meets someone who has a need. Usually it's a physical need. And he says, your sins are forgiven. And everyone freaks out. How can you forgive someone else's sin? Like, that's a pretty radical statement to make. Imagine this. Imagine Jeff's right here. Imagine Jeff's offended me, right? He's offended me. And Charlie goes, hey, don't worry, Jeff. You're forgiven for offending Mike. How am I supposed to feel about that? I Don't I have a little something to say in that? It's this ridiculous thing for Jesus to come on the scene and say, the behaviors that you've done that have offended God are forgiven. Because who are you then? You're speaking on my behalf. And so time and time again, Jesus has this weird interaction where it doesn't matter. I mean, he'll heal someone, they'll, they'll be blind and now they can see. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what is this nonsense you're saying about forgiving sins? Instead of being impressed or focused on the supernatural thing that Jesus does, he's, he's instead, come on now, criticized over and over again. 
Yet Jesus, time and time again, says, my mission here is relational. That physical thing I healed you from, eventually you're gonna have a problem again. But the sin thing that I'm gonna heal you from, it's changing everything. She'll give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he'll save people from their sins. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Remember, this was a promise that came from the Old Testament that the virgin will be conceive and give birth to a son and they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God wanted to demonstrate his love to us. And the way he chose to do it was Christmas. And that's why God needed Christmas. So Pastor Mike, it's weird to say God needs anything. Well, he can decide what he needs. And he decided he needed Christmas. And so he sent his son in order to show us that this entire thing was about relationship and that it was available for me and it was available for you. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him not perish but have eternal life. The word believes means to trust. And for some of us this season, just believing in Christmas would be trusting God. Some of you are like, I believe in Christmas. That's like Santa. No, 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 no. Come on, come back. Believing in Christmas means believing in the story that there was a rescue mission for you and for me. Why? Because God wanted us to know that we were adopted into the family. We were designed for relationship with him. We were no longer slaves. Come on now. But we were sons and daughters of the king. That's what I want to believe in this Christmas. Would you stand with me? Next week, we are going to continue this conversation of who needs Christmas. I think we're going to find out that we actually need Christmas too. And so I want to pray with you before we sing. And we're going to sing a, a Christmas song. I believe we're going to sing Angels We Have Heard on High. I'm excited. And uh, recognizing that when the shepherds showed up and heard that peace was going to come to the earth, that this was the story and the narrative that God had for us, that peace was going to be attainable between us and him because of what Jesus had done. So this morning, God, I pray that you would increase our Christmas belief in who you are, in your son, and that you sent him and came and came in the flesh for us, and that that is the story of Christmas. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's lift our voices together.